Now for the scripture reading tonight, um, we have Matt 13, 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Good evening, y'all. My name is Jason. I work here. And... um... I am so grateful uh, to get to be with you tonight. It is one of the deepest joys and honors of my life to be here. I actually just got a text from a close friend who is um, a, a pretty generous donor to the ministry of the house. If you don't know, the house is a nonprofit organization here in Chattanooga. There's no other houses, so to speak. We don't belong to any larger institution. It's a ministry of this city and for this city, and we're in our 27th year. And we are funded entirely by generous donations from alumni, churches, nonprofit organizations, and businesses. And this gentleman, who's a good friend of mine that donates to the house, he said, what you doing? And I took a picture of the room. I was like, bro, it's Tuesday. And, and he's like, oh, I forgot. And I was like, don't worry about it. Just keep sending the money. And, uh, and I told Kirsten and Josh, I'm really thankful that I can interact with donors that way. One day, you too could interact with me that way. And uh, that's what I get to do tonight. But it really is, I told him this, it's... Um, such an honor to get to see the way the Lord's at work in your life. And um, uh, I've, I've known Corey since she's a freshman. Corey, actually, I think you know this. Tiffany actually talked to me about you before. You got here, right? Was that was before I met you, I think. Where are you? I don't know where you are. But anyway, uh, Corey had a, a, a gal that knew her. She was like, hey, this girl Corey's coming to UTC, and she's amazing. You've got to find her, you know. And so I've known Corey since she's a freshman. She knows my family. But I actually didn't know hardly any of the stuff you shared up here, so we got to talk more. Um, and thank you for sharing that. If you don't know, the Lord is at work in mighty ways, um, in confusing ways, in mysterious ways, uh, in everybody's life in this room. And um, so many of us are, are, don't know about that stuff. And I hope and pray that in the context of some of the things that we get to do around here, that you get to discover some of that in each other. And that we get to carry each other's burdens and pray for one another and see how the Lord works in mighty ways through each and every one of us, you know. Um, so tonight, uh, we're, we're looking at a passage of Scripture uh, that Caleb read, uh, where Jesus goes home. He goes home. And the people at his home have a hard time receiving him in a new way. And my prayer tonight is that as Jesus comes home to you, uh, that you would not be scandalized by him, but that you'd receive him and the kingdom that he brings with him. So let's pray. Father, uh, in your goodness and in your mercy, would you send your spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you. Would you comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus has been like touring around this region, uh, casting out demons, healing the sick, and teaching people about his kingdom. 
He's been teaching in parables, which are these sort of little metaphorical stories, and they're designed to demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like. So the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and he has some things to say about that. It's like yeast in the lump of dough, and he has some things to say about that, and it's like a farmer. This is what the kingdom of God's like, a farmer who throws out seed, and the seed lands in all these different kinds of soil, and it produces different kinds of things because of the soil. And then in the text that we read tonight, Jesus comes home and we get a concrete example of what kind of soil he encounters at home. The, the author, Matthew, puts it together this way. Here's a parable about the kinds of soil that the seed falls into and here's Jesus, the word of God, falling onto the soil of Nazareth. And what happens? Well, Jesus grew up at Nazareth a small, uneventful town by the world's standards. I mean, Jesus was born there, but we call it a small, uneventful town, and that's kind of the point of the message tonight. Jesus returned home to the people whom he sat next to on Saturdays at synagogue when he was growing up, where the scriptures were unrolled and were read from scrolls. And by this time when he, or but this time when he returns home, he unrolls a scroll himself and he teaches from it. And at first, we, we hear in the scriptures, and you can look at the scriptures we're talking about tonight on uh, thehouseutc.org slash worship. It's what we have all the stuff on. You can look at it there. It's in Matthew, uh, the very end of chapter 13. As he begins to unroll the scroll, we, we actually see that everybody's kind of impressed with him. It's sort of like a, look at how Jesus is all grown up. You know, this hometown boy, now he's teaching in the synagogue. But when he began to teach with wisdom and authority, and when things that he taught began to challenge them, they were scandalized. The Greek word that's actually translated offended in the, in the translation we're reading from today, the Greek word actually literally means scandalized. Isn't this the carpenter's son, they said? Isn't this Mary's kid? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? Isn't this the guy we all know? And tonight I want to draw your attention to three things in the text. Take this to the bank. I only give three-point sermons once every four or five years. Okay? First, that what they experience, what they experience is filtered through what they've known. What, what they can know, what they are knowing in the present, it's filtered through what they've known. Second, the ordinariness of Jesus is offensive. The ordinariness of him is offensive. And third, Jesus didn't do many miracles among them because of their lack of faith. What they experience is filtered through what they've known. This is the town where Jesus was nursed and taught to read and write, where he learned how to behave with his brothers and sisters and with the people down the street. The town where he learned how to do a job and played an active role in the interdependent society of a small town. The town where people used to eat lunch with him when he was a teenager, where they worked beside him for years and told jokes with him around the fire at night. He went back to the town where they celebrated weddings and went on long walks around the lake where they rested and they played on Sabbath day. He returned to the place where he grew up. Now Jesus, on this particular Saturday in the synagogue, wants them to know, probably from, uh, we read about this in Luke chapter four where Jesus unrolls, the, we, we find different accounts of this particular story. And in Luke's gospel, we read of the scroll he actually unrolled and the passage that he actually read from Messiah. 
or, or from Isaiah, where he said he is the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, the one that God has been promising for generations. And now I want you, my hometown people, to know I'm the one. But how could he be the Messiah when he's just the kid from down the street? They have known him in one particular way, and now he's asking them to know him in a new way. Which probably isn't too hard for us to understand if we think about our own experiences, the ways in which it's hard for people around us to receive us when we grow and when we change and when we live in different ways we've lived before. Some of you experience this when you go home. You want your parents and your siblings and your high school friends to understand some of the new ways that you understand who you are and some of the new things that you're leaning into. And it can be very difficult for people around us to receive us in new ways if they've had previous experiences with us that we can't sort of escape from in their imagination. This is the first time in a few years. I'm gonna skip that. Many of you know what it's like when you return home and you're supposed to, the people that are supposed to know you best seem like they have such a hard time receiving you. How lonely and isolating that feels and how much you want them to be able to incorporate what they have known and what they ought to know now about your life. And it was hard for those who grew up with Jesus to receive him in a new way like that. Friends, there are ways in which God wants to make himself known to you too, which might be hard for you because they're different than some of the things you've known. There are ways you've grown up, things you've learned, patterns of life you're used to, which can actually make it difficult for you to see Jesus for who he is. Many people this isn't in my notes. You can pray for me. Many, and for you. Many people who are de deconstructing their faith and social media platforms have this experience. What they have known makes it incredibly difficult for them to know who Jesus is now. What they experience is filtered through what they have known. This was true for the people in Nazareth. It's true for many of us. We'll come back to that in the end. Second, the ordinariness of Jesus is offensive. He didn't begin his public ministry until he was about 30 years old. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it quite this way, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth grew up down the street from a bunch of people who never for one minute thought he was the son of God. 30 years. There was nothing particularly remarkable about Jesus. There was nothing particularly remarkable about Jesus in his humanity. That's the way the prophet Isaiah put it. And we see it fulfilled in the reaction of his hometown community. When God became human, he did it so thoroughly that he fit in. There's no way they thought this could be the Messiah. His ordinariness was offensive. This is one of the chief stumbling blocks on down through the ages. The idea that Jesus was a six-year-old boy at some point and had to be taught to like swing a hammer makes it hard for some of us. Why would God, if he's God, need to learn how to swing a hammer? If Jesus is who Christians proclaim he is, how could he have lived in a neighborhood for 30 years and no one knew? It's one thing for you to tell me that God is among us. That's a claim. It's another for you to tell me that he got hungry, that he went to the bathroom, that he needed to sleep. 
2,000 years ago, someone could remember Jesus swinging a hammer and hitting the edge of a nail and it ricocheting off and hitting his thumb. And then they watched as Jesus sucked on his thumb to dull the pain. How could that person be God? But let's get right to the point. If he's the Messiah, if he's the son of God, if he is God in flesh, how could we have killed him? How could he let us? And how is that even possible? This is our great stumbling block, the ordinariness of Jesus. But this stumbling block is also, of course, the cornerstone for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because our faith as Christians is not founded upon our ability to be like God. Our faith is in the fact that God in love has become like us to the uttermost, even to the point of death, the thing that you and I would do anything to avoid except for Jesus Christ. And he has made us to be like him, even to life eternal. The Apostle Paul reflects on this in a soaring verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He has become like us in order that we might become like him. He's become ordinary in order that we might become extraordinary, or maybe a better way to say it is that we might realize how extraordinary it is to be ordinary. He came among us as a human, fully human, placing himself into the care of a teenage woman 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and he didn't need anyone to tell him what it's like to be human because he knew and he knows, friends. And this is the chief of mysteries, this is the chief of mysteries, that God in Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. It is generally not difficult, I, I, I invite you to try to imagine this, it is generally not difficult to believe in one or the other of these claims. To believe that Jesus was a guy, like a human 2,000 years ago, had some good things to say, maybe worth emulating to some capacity, maybe a little crazy and delusional. You can lift him up and, and, and like, like another prophet or, or uh, hero in history. That's not difficult. It, it may be difficult for some, but I don't, also don't think it's terribly difficult for many people to believe that he is divine. Many Christians today, I mean, every Christian today, if you call yourself a Christian, do believe this, but to hold these things together is incredibly difficult. I mean, that he's fully human. I know some Christians who are like, well, he probably didn't have body odor, though. And I'm like, why? Why are you subhuman if you have body odor? Do you know what I mean? Is that what that means? What is the deal, right? But it's like, no, no, he couldn't have. He didn't go to the bathroom because his body, literally, Christians have, there's, there's literally ancient writings about this, Christians debating, did Jesus' body so perfectly digest food that he had no urine and fecal matter? You know? And you're like, man, you guys are stretching. Because, you're, because it's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable that he was human. He was, that he was ordinary. These two things are so hard to hold together. And Jesus, of course, did hold them together in himself. And his church has spent 2,000 years holding them together as she has held him in her midst and offered him to the world. And in age after age, as the world asks for signs and wonders evidencing the glory of God, tell me, Christian, how you know that he is God. Tell me, Christian, what the good news is that you proclaim. What is it, church, that you really have to offer the world? His church offers them his ordinary broken body and his ordinary spilled blood. And it just seems all too freaking ordinary and humble 
for the world. And so the world's offended. What we experience is filtered through what we've known and the ordinariness of Jesus is offensive. And finally, Jesus didn't do many miracles among them because of their lack of faith. In the Gospel of Mark, which is another uh, collection of, uh, a collected story of Jesus' life in the Bible, Mark says that Jesus could do no great act among them because of their lack of faith. Matthew, riffing off of Mark's account, softens the language just a little bit and says Jesus didn't do many miracles. He didn't say couldn't, he says didn't. And I, I want to say that because I, I want you to see something right now, okay? Because even this point leans back a little bit into the previous point. Because maybe it hits some of you strangely that Matthew would tell the story in a slightly different way than Mark would. Maybe for you it's too human. Maybe it's too ordinary for God to let a human being curate and arrange the story to highlight certain elements. The author of Matthew is masterful in his arrangement of his gospel account, arranging the story of Jesus' life around five core sermons, weaving together a kind of new Torah for the people of God as these five teachings map onto the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, preparing the readers to embark upon a new exodus into a new holy land. Y'all, it's stunning what Matthew does in his work. It's a highly curated and artistic story and telling of Jesus' life. And for some of us, for some of us, it's easier to believe that the Bible came down out of the sky in, in, in gold and surrounded by light. And it wouldn't be hard for us if it did that for us to believe this is from God. Now that, that is from God. As long as it's not touched by something ordinary, I could believe maybe it's divine. But to know that it might have come to us through humans, through human authors and editors, well, that's too ordinary, isn't it? It can't be divinely inspired if it happened that way, could it? If it's really from God, how could it come through human means? If it's really from God, it would not be so ordinary. This is the same pushback the people of Nazareth have about Jesus. He cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be the Son of God. He cannot be God among us because he's too human. I knew him growing up. That can't be God. Just before Jesus comes home to Nazareth, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13 that we read from tonight, Jesus says that his kingdom can be compared to a farmer throwing seed out on all this ground around him. It's a remarkably famous uh, parable of Jesus's. And some of this seed, he says, falls on this hard sort of path, this crusted ground where the seed sits on top. And some of that seed's going to fall in this nutrient-rich but not very deep soil. And some of that seed's going to fall on good soil with a bunch of rocks and weeds in it. And some of it's just going to fall on good soil. It's not crowded with rocks and weeds. And depending on, get this, this is kind of the point here, depending on which kind of soil the seed falls into, there will be different results. The seed which falls upon that hard, crusted, sort of walking path ground, it's just going to sit there on the top of the ground until some birds come to snatch the seed away. The seed that falls into this sort of shallow, nutrient-rich soil, man, it's going to burst quickly with fruit. And people are going to be like, wow, look how fruitful that is. But it has no roots. And so one little trial of wind and sun scorches it and it's dead. And some of that seed's going to fall into what is really good soil with room for roots to grow, but it's crowded with rocks and weeds. And Jesus says those are the riches and cares of the world, and it's going to choke it out. So it'll never have a chance to be fruitful. 
and some of that seed. And if you're following along in the narrative, it's kind of depressing. You go, my gosh, is any of this seed falling anywhere good? Some of that seed falls on the good soil, and Jesus says, and there's a surprise, that, that soil produces 30, 60, and 100-fold. Jesus had just told them this parable and then told them what that means in terms of the kingdom. You see, he explained it to them. You can read about that in Matthew 13. And then we see Matthew right at the end of this sort of parable section. We then come back to narrative in his account. Jesus finishes up his teaching. That's our first verse, and he goes to Nazareth. And when Matthew is starting to tell this story, he's giving us a concrete example of the kind of soil Nazareth is. If you see what Matthew's doing, he sets up this parable and then he begins to show you the examples of the different soils in the coming chapters. And Nazareth is this hard, crusted ground that the seed doesn't go into and it just sits on the surface where birds will come or Jesus says Satan comes and snatches it away. And if you're interested, you may not be, in the Gospel of Matthew, he never comes back to his hometown again after this story. When he goes home, Matthew wants you thinking, what kind of soil is he going to find in Nazareth? My question for us tonight is, what kind of soil is he going to find when he comes home to us? How is what we experience from him now, what we hear from his word, what we read in the scriptures, what we, what we hear in sermons, what we sing in songs, what we hear Christians testify about, how is what is proclaimed about Jesus filtered through what we've known? How does it make it hard for us to receive him? Are we offended at the ordinary ways in which he comes to us? God is at work to redeem all things and make all things new. This is, this, this is a sort of common motif in the whole of the biblical witness. He's at work to redeem all things and make all things new. You should expect, as he does that, for him to introduce you to new patterns of life, to new ways of thinking, which won't fit old patterns and old ways of thinking. A very famous verse that sort of explores this is Romans chapter 12. Verses one and two, that we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship and we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He goes on, Romans 12 is a phenomenal chapter looking at the core of what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple, of, as a disciple okay? But there's a reforming, there's a renewing, there's a changing of things that is constantly happening in, in our lives as Jesus continues to bring us, he would say to his his. Uh, to the church in Corinth, by degrees of glory into the likeness of the Son, as he's at work to change us. For the people of Nazareth, they needed to let go of the idea that Jesus was just the boy who lived down the street. He was, he is, still, forever and ever, God is now known as, as the boy who grew up in Nazareth too. For you, it may be that you need to let go of the idea that all of this is really about just getting into heaven rather than God redeeming the whole of the cosmos. Do you know that you're a part of that? Or maybe you believe that Jesus is just your personal Lord and Savior. He is that. But he's inviting you to recognize also that he's the sovereign king who reigns over all things. A few months ago, I heard someone reflecting on the fact, maybe I've talked about this here already, it's been in my head so much over the past six months. Did I talk about Princess Diana and Mother Teresa? Did I talk about that here? I don't know, I'm going to repeat it anyway, I guess. So uh, a few months ago, 
someone on a podcast, I think it was on Krista Tippett's On Being podcast, I forget who she was interviewing, but uh, she's f- the best interviewer on the planet. Um, she's amazing. And, and I, I forget who it was. All I could think about is how great she is. But she pulled out this story from whoever, she, some joker she was talking to, and he, and he was reflecting on the fact that Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died in the same week. And as you can imagine, Princess Diana's uh, death covered the headlines in the news like everywhere. You could hardly hear about Mother Teresa that week. And it seemed like, if you like pay attention to the news, it seemed like every little girl in the world wanted to be Princess Diana. That's what it seemed like. And comparatively, no one seemed to be clamoring to be Mother Teresa. And this is particularly fascinating and heartbreaking because only one person in the world can be the Princess of Wales. But anybody can be a saint. Only one person can be Princess Diana. Anybody can be Mother Teresa. But we're all clamoring to be one and not the other. We're too busy asking for greatness as defined by the world while God is offering us greatness as defined in his son. He who has nothing to look at, who places his glory in broken vessels, who decided in his infinite wisdom, as crazy as it seems to us, to reach the world through his very human church. He is so ordinary that we are tempted to reject him. And the scriptures and and God's church throughout the ages have been proclaiming that Jesus, by the power of his spirit, is standing right now at the door and knocking at each one of our lives. He's coming home to each and every one of us. Kirsten even talked about God wanting to come and make his home with us last week. Our scripture passage today just lands so heavy on me and it says, don't be like Nazareth, rejecting him because he's too ordinary. Don't reject him because he's too ordinary. Don't reject the work of his kingdom because it's too ordinary, because it doesn't fit your grid of what the world says is great. Because his ways are not the ways of the world. And what if what you really need is to see that God is glorified in ordinary things and in the most ordinary one of all, so ordinary in fact that everything else is ordered around him. And if that is true, and this is, gosh, this is why it all really comes home to us, friends. Because if, if God can be glorified in ordinary things, it means God can be glorified in ordinary you. Blessed are you who don't get offended by him because of his ordinariness. Who don't get offended because of his ordinariness. And blessed are you if you are on the lookout for the ways in which he is coming all of the ordinary and marvelous things of his kingdom into your life. Let's take a minute to, to reflect on that, to pray if you want to. Um, I'd love for you to consider the ways in which Jesus might be coming into your life like he's coming to Nazareth. The ways in which it might be hard for you to receive him because he seems too ordinary. And what he might be asking you to receive. Corey mentioned earlier um, uh, a, a quote from Romans chapter eight, which is my favorite chapter in the Bible. Um, If you don't know how to pray, that's fine. The Spirit of God is praying for you. You don't need, turns out this is how consistent this message is in the scriptures. Um, Jesus literally says specifically, you don't need fancy words when you pray. God doesn't hear you because you're extraordinary. You just gotta say what you wanna say. Say whatever's on your mind or your heart. He even says, keep your words few, don't worry about it. You know, but if you don't know how to pray, it's okay. 
the Spirit to pray for you. Let's take a minute to think about that, pray if you want to, and then we're gonna, um, we're gonna take communion tonight. We'll go through that together too. Father, would you help us to receive the ways in which your Son comes to us? Help us, Lord, with the, the work that we need to integrate what we've known with what you're giving to us now. Help us with that work. Help us not to do it alone, but to be able to do it in community of your people, please. Help us to not be offended by the ordinary ways in which you are at work in each one of us. Gosh, Lord, and, and may, the, may the humble nature by which you've come into the world and the ways in which you have lifted up the lowly and you've brought down the mighty, that you've leveled the playing field and you've shown that everything you've made is good and that you love everything that you've made and that we can give up all the pressure to define greatness and grasp at greatness or to help us to see the ways in which you come at the ordinary things the ways in which you've called us to love in ordinary ways our neighbor and to receive ordinary things like forgiveness. And may we see your glory manifested in those things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.